I want to thank you for inviting me this evening and for giving me this opportunity to talk a little bit about my, my day job. I, I'm conscious as we sit in this splendid room uh, that not very far away from here, uh, 11 members of the armed forces, most of them bandsmen, died in twin bomb attacks in Hyde Park and Regent's Park in 1982. London was repeatedly attacked by the IRA from the early 70s uh, to the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. And since then, uh, jihadi-inspired terrorists have added to the capital's death toll. But for people of a certain age, and I'm sure I'm not the only person present to feel this way, it's becoming increasingly the case to reflect that London, uh, the UK, Europe, are in, the are in the grip of a security threat which has perhaps not felt so chilling for decades. Statistically, we're clearly in a better place now than back in the dark days of the 70s and uh, the 80s across Europe. So why is it that we don't feel safer now? The first explanation is, is I think, that the sense of insecurity and threat today is reinforced by the vast range of technological advances available to those who wish to harm us. The catch-all word for this phenomenon is cyber, and I'm afraid we'll be hearing a lot more about it in the future. And I'm sorry, too, that we seem to have reached the end of an age of innocence about technology, uh, and that we must prepare ourselves for an age in which we'll all be required to be more clear-eyed about its costs as well as its benefits. Technology obviously brings huge benefits and positive opportunities, uh, but the cyber age represents a paradigm shift in the way our enemies can harm us and consequently a big challenge for us to adapt to that threat. I think we need to do this in at least three ways. By boosting our awareness of the multiplicity of, of jeopardies, which range from ransomware to false news. By building our resilience to cyber attacks at a personal, everyday level, uh, all the way through to uh, reinforcing our critical infrastructure. And, though less my subject tonight, uh, by thinking about deterrence. In other words, by having the ability and tools ready to turn from defense to offense when faced by large-scale cyber attacks which threaten, say, our cities or aspects of our democratic system. The second reason, I think, for our sense of insecurity is the changing nature of the threat emanating from a crowded field of protagonists, many motivated by an ideology fundamentally opposed to our values, and, and which is clearly not constrained by borders. It's the sense that nowhere feels truly safe. Uh, those trying to do us harm can come from a long way away, or they can have grown up in our own communities, have been neighbors and apparently friends. And there's clearly a sense of frustration that this threat is so difficult to counter and so difficult to manage, and a feeling we could and should be doing better. Sadly, it's not that difficult to find the what-if examples. The terrorist who murdered 12 people at a Christmas market in Berlin a few weeks ago was on the radar of both the German and Italian security services. We now know he was using as many as 14 different identities. What if information sharing had been better in early December? 
One of the main culprits of the Bataclan theater attack in, in Paris was stopped at police checkpoints, but allowed to go free because the officers examining his papers were not in the full picture about his terrorist links. What if those officers have been directed to check not just one database, but several? Would the subsequent attacks in Brussels have been thwarted? Working with colleagues across the commission, uh, my role, as Charles said, is to try and reinforce the effort that we're making on countering terrorism and serious and organized crime, as well as these new threats posed by, by cyber. All of these threats and challenges clearly have a transnational dimension. Uh, recent attacks demonstrate a network of activity across Europe, which we can most effectively counter, clearly, by working together. Member states remain, rightly, in the front line of addressing these threats, but the EU can and should support their work. Across the Commission, we're working on two main fronts. First, to bear down on the space in which terrorists, cybercriminals, other criminals can act. And second, to reinforce our resilience to resist their attacks and to bounce back if, unfortunately, there are further attacks. I believe we've made progress, good progress, over the last 18 months or so, both on fighting terrorism and the challenges of cyber. But these are not risks that you can eliminate. On terrorism, we've strengthened our ability to know who is coming in and out of our countries by strengthening checks and controls at external borders and the exchange of information between our law enforcement and security agencies. Uh, we established the European Border and Coast Guard Agency. We've agreed a revised Schengen border code to systematically check all those coming in and out. Uh, we can also do a lot better on implementing the stuff that we've already agreed. To take one example, uh, that some of you will be familiar with. Uh, there's something called PRUM, which was established 10 years ago to give countries access to each other's DNA, fingerprint, and vehicle registration files. A number of countries have yet still to take the final steps necessary to make it work. We're trying to support them, but if necessary, we can and will make further use of infringement procedures to get them to get a move on. There's a new counterterrorism directive. Travel to and from combat zones, Training for the purposes of fighting and the financing of such activities will now be criminalized all across the EU. The UK already had such rules in place. But our collective security is only as strong as our weakest link. So it's essential that there are rules and standards in place in all EU countries. And we're toughening the rules on money laundering as well, which helps finance terrorism and serious crime. And we've agreed a deal on firearms, which will remove the most dangerous military-grade weapons from wider circulation, where, frankly, they have no place to be. So we are making it harder for terrorists to travel, to train, to finance themselves, and to acquire weapons and explosives. And we're making progress on cyber, too. We now have a directive on the security of networks and information systems, which beefs up our resilience by requiring all member states to have a national cyber security strategy and an authority to run it and to improve European cooperation. We've stepped up our fight against cybercrime with a new specialist unit at Europol that you were probably talking about the other day, which has already scored a number of successes in dismantling international crime networks. We're increasing funding for innovation in the field of cybersecurity 
uh, and also reinforcing international cooperation, because partnerships are vital if we are to build sufficient capacity to respond at the right level. We're committed to learning the lessons of what works and building on good practice. We're strengthening our cooperation with NATO. This summer, we shall test our preparedness to deal with cyber incidents and review how we're getting on building our resilience to possible hybrid attacks. We need to continue to plan for the future because threats in this field are not going away and they do not stand still. Looking ahead, I also want to improve and modernize the architecture of our European law enforcement data systems, maintaining the highest standards of data protection. I want to make it easier for a frontline law enforcement officer or indeed a border guard or an immigration officer to do their jobs. But beating the terrorists isn't just about legal frameworks and databases. It's about defending our values and the kind of society that we want to live in. We need to counter those who seek to radicalize people into committing acts of terrorism, whether that's through propaganda disseminated on the internet and social media, or through radicalizing vulnerable young people in our communities. We're working successfully with the big internet and communication service providers to tackle hate speech, incitement to violence, and pernicious propaganda on the web, to identify it, take it down, and stop it spreading. We're working with a growing network of civil society organizations and actors across Europe to tackle radicalization in our communities. I'm convinced, and I based this partly on my own experience in a different context in Northern Ireland, that the most effective work to counter radicalization in the community is not by the state, still less by Brussels, it's through grassroots civil society action. To finish, given the unanswerable case for a collective response to the current global threats, perhaps I should say one or two words about the elephant in the room. The UK is leaving the European Union. We're just weeks away from Article 50 being triggered. I can't speak for the UK government, authorities, there are others here who might, on their plans for future security cooperation. And there are obviously things that we simply do not yet know about future relations. But the UK's decision late last year to opt into Europol's new regulation was, I believe, good for the UK and good for everybody. Of course, terrorists, cyber criminals, couldn't care less whether a country is in or out of Schengen or in or out of the EU. The interconnected world in which we live today offers unprecedented opportunities, including to criminals and terrorists and hostile states. That's why it's essential to work together. The UK's departure from the EU will not change any of that reality. We're going to need to continue to have the highest quality security cooperation so, frankly, we can be ready for whatever the future holds. Thank you. Thank you very much.